This week we're going to be looking at the case of In the Matter of C, Children. The citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 8. This case has its origins in the breakdown of a marriage between a man and a woman who had been living together in Australia with their two children. The reason that we are coming across this in the context of the UK legal system is because the mother holds British citizenship and also she wanted to go on a trip to England with the children. Even though the marriage was already falling apart, the husband agreed to them taking an eight-week stay that commenced when the wife arrived in England at the start of May 2015. The problem is that the mother did not return to Australia after eight weeks. In fact, they have been in this country ever since. At first, the father did agree to an extension so that instead of staying in England for eight weeks, the mother and two children could stay for a year. During that year, from May 2015 to May 2016, a lot happened. In the first instance, the mother quit her job in Australia and began looking for work in England. Then, in September, she enrolled the older child in preschool, and in November, she applied for both children to obtain British citizenship without informing the father. During this time, her solicitor got in touch with immigration authorities to let them know that she could not return to Australia because she feared domestic abuse. The father was not entirely out of the picture in those 12 months and did keep in touch, asking when the mother would return home with the children. It was only in May 2016 that she made it clear that she and the children would not be returning to Australia, and then later confirmed that the intention was to remain in the UK. Unsurprisingly, the father was not happy about this and applied to the High Court with regard to the 1980 Convention on the Civil Aspects of International Child Abduction. The first question for the court was at what point the mother actually decided not to return to Australia. The mother argued that she only came to this decision in April 2016, but in any case it was certainly before the agreed year was up in May of that year. The High Court did also hold though that before April 2016, the mother did not have an intention to never return to Australia. The next question to answer was where are the children habitually resident? In other words, which country should be considered to be the children's home? Taking into account the age of the children, how long they had been in the country, and other factors such as the enrolment into preschool mentioned earlier, the judge held that the children were by this point habitually resident in England. When the case got to the Court of Appeal, the judges held that there was such a thing as repudiatory retention, and that this is the idea that a parent, in this case the mother, has wrongfully retained the child even though the agreed period of absence has not expired. The one question that divided the Court of Appeal was whether the repudiatory retention had to be communicated. While Lady Justice Black, who is now in the Supreme Court, although obviously not sitting on this case, found that there should be some form of communication, whether that be direct communication or implied from the other parent's actions, the other two Lady Justices held that there did not need to be any communication at all. With this in mind, it was very persuasive evidence that in November 2015, when the mother applied for the children to get British citizenship, there was no intention of returning to Australia, and so the Court of Appeal found in favour of the father. When the case came before the Supreme Court, there were two main issues for the Justices to answer. Firstly, what happens when a child becomes habitually resident in a country before the wrongful removal or retention even occurs? 
Secondly, if the parents have agreed to the removal beforehand for a set period of time, can there be a repudiatory retention before that agreed period expires? The problem with the first issue is that we're talking about returning children to a different country from the country that they are already habitually resident in. Not only does this make very little sense on a practical level, but it also operates against the very essence of what the International Abduction Convention is all about. The overall effect of the scheme is to nullify, or at the very least, lessen the impact of wrongful removal by providing a remedy that can allow for a child to be swiftly returned home. Once that happens, a more considered merits-based decision can be taken in the country of habitual residence. The sticking point in this case is that the children are already living in the country of habitual residence, and so it is impossible to return them to a country in which they already live. The second question is a little more complicated as it seeks to build on the scheme that already exists within the International Abduction Convention. Nevertheless, the concept of repudiatory retention does exist in places such as the United States and Canada, so it's not like there is no precedent whatsoever, and it is certainly not a bad thing that the law tries to accurately define the point at which the retaining parent decides not to return. This could lead to situations where the parent who is left behind goes beyond the 12-month period in making their application for return. But this is not a strict time limit and only operates to protect the interests of the child. The other potential disadvantage that exists in relation to the concept of repudiatory retention is that it will make cases longer and more complicated. But Lord Hughes noted that the family division are used to dealing with complicated cases. The idea that this might encourage more speculative applications under the convention brings us on to the next point that split the Court of Appeal. The justices held that there would be far fewer occurrences of applicants chancing the system if there was a requirement in place for an objectively identifiable act of repudiation. Thus there is no need for direct communication or even an exact date of repudiation but there has to be some way for the courts to establish that there has been repudiatory retention. With both issues resolved, it was now time to turn back to the facts of the case, and for the majority there was no wrongful retention in April 2016, based on the mother's internal thinking. As we just discussed, there needs to be some objectively identifiable act or communication, and so a purely internal thought does not count. There is an outstanding grey area, however, concerning November 2015 when the mother decided to apply for the children to obtain British citizenship. Is this not an action that can be considered a form of repudiatory retention? For the majority, it was perfectly reasonable for the trial judge to come to the conclusion that it was not repudiatory retention if he was convinced by the mother's evidence. But for Lords Kerr and Wilson, this was not exactly a persuasive approach. They felt that the connection between the letter to immigration authorities and the mother's intention was not investigated properly, and that, as noted by the Court of Appeal, this aspect was well worth a renewed inquiry. Overall, these cases are very hard to pass a judgment call on, as there are sympathies on both sides. The mother has gone to extreme lengths to take herself and the children out of Australia, and that period of time cannot have been easy for her. Uprooting your whole life is difficult at the best of times, 
never mind with two young children. Furthermore, the idea of an abusive ex on your tail would only add to the list of worries. The father, meanwhile, has had his children taken away from him to the other side of the world, and is now having to do everything in his power to get them back. He's also been accused by his ex of domestic abuse. It's no wonder that the family courts have such difficulties, as there is simply no one right answer. The best that they can hope to do is to look at the facts of the case, alongside the law, and make a decision on that basis. I think this is where the Supreme Court went wrong in this instance. Their conclusion on the law itself is hard to criticise. The justices took a considered approach to habitual residence in a way that married up with the convention and adopted a position on repudiatory retention that builds on the law as it currently stands, while also paying close attention to the effects that this development will have in practice. This is exactly what the Supreme Court should be doing. The problem is that they are just then too wary of taking the next step and applying the law properly in this particular case. The truth is that the judge in the High Court did not do an especially good job at examining the facts of this case, and in particular using those facts to determine the intention of the mother. That should be the overall priority in these cases, but the judge seemed to lose sight of this. The judge's job might have been easier if he had a better sense of what was to come from the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, but if that was the case, this was the chance to rectify that fact. It's not often the best idea for courts at a higher level to criticise the judges working below them. Those judges tend to have a much better sense of the facts of the case, because they have heard them firsthand, and picking this apart may not only be undermining, but also dismiss the findings of the person best placed to work out what exactly is going on. I don't think that would be true here, however. The judge got the right facts, but just failed to put them together in the correct way. This is not to say that if he got another crack of the whip, he would come to a different conclusion, but at least we would know that he is now applying the facts to the law in the correct manner. In the end, that is all we can ask for in such difficult family cases. Well, thank you very much for listening to this podcast episode and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Thanks as well to everyone at home who gets a chance to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That's always very much appreciated. Also remember to check out the YouTube channel if you do get a chance at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. But that's all from me this week, so I will speak to you again next week when we've got another case. In the meantime, bye!